0: Welcome to the LSE events podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. A very warm welcome to all of you. My name is Eric Normaier. I'm the interim president and vice chancellor uh, of the LSE. And it's a great pleasure to have with us here tonight, Aaron Bayer. hanger we were supposed to have our conversation about nearly three weeks ago, then the combined rail strike and tube strike made us rethink that. Uh, so rather than kicking off the Black History Month, now it's kind of in the middle uh, of it, uh, but it is still a wonderful event, uh, it is to celebrate black figures, uh, their role not just for the black community, but for history more broadly. We had a wonderful event. I couldn't make it, but I hear massive uh, reports from it. We had Henry Louis Gates Jr., oh, honorary, honorary doctorate wow. Uh, wow. for him, and uh, it was really uh, amazing. I should also mention we have a discussion on black feminism in Europe on the 30th of October, which I believe is next week, uh, and many other events that have already happened or are. Uh, still happen. Now, who is Aaron? <laughs> Critically acclaimed, now it comes, actor, writer, voice artist, and singer, i.e., multiple talents. Uh, he's also an alum. Uh, 2015 International History? Precisely. Yes. Precisely. Uh, so you can see great things can come uh, from studying at the LSE. Uh, though, uh, as Aaron told us, in the um, Greenroom, he was already actually an, at least an actor. I don't know about the other things. Were you doing other things already as well? Predominantly acting. Yeah, that's predominantly right. acting, uh, really starting out super, super um, early. Uh, so he's currently a writer on Spellbound, and he's working on a comedy script commission for Avalon. Uh, the original comedy script Sexual Adventures of a Brown Boy is being developed along with several exciting projects in the US. And he spends a lot of time in LA. Actually, I'm going to ask you a little bit about the film industry uh, okay. uh, later on. As a stage actor, his credits include the original West End cast of Smash Musicals and Juliet, Kinky Boys, as well as Leave to Remain, uh, Lin Manuel Miranda's In the Heights, Angels in America, League Out the track as voice artists artist has worked for BBC Radio, Spotify, Audible, Play Station. So uh, what is going to uh, happen for those of you who are in the audience, Twitter, no, it's not Twitter, Thanks. X, uh, like it or not, but uh, hashtag LSE Black History Month if you want to engage uh, in that and we will make it available as a podcast subject to nothing going wrong with the technology. Um, so, I, they have seven questions there for me, I don't want to do seven, I'll probably do two or three, because we want to hear mostly from you in conversation with uh, Eric. But let me start. So as all of you know, we don't have drama studies at the LSE, you study international history. Uh, you told us already a little bit, but most of the people present here didn't hear. Why did you not go to drama school? Why did you come to the LSE to study international history? And is there anything mm, that was of use, kind of, <laughs> kind of relevance for what you're yes, doing, absolutely. doing now? So much
1: of use. I think for me, I was very academic at school. My mom was a teacher, and she raised us to be very conscientious and work very hard. Because in the school, if you do, if you work hard, you tend to do well. So I would see myself get good grades and I was like, this feels really nice. And I loved the fact that I could dive into various different subjects in a day and feel very challenged and satiated by the, the options available. So when it came to going to university or applying to university, I felt like I didn't want to necessarily restrict myself. Whereas you're encouraged to, I guess, specify what you want to do at like 15, 16, around your GCSEs. I was like, I don't really know. I know I want to act, but I don't want to necessarily go into acting school. I, had two older, I have two older brothers. One went to art school, one went to drama school, and I saw their experiences as black men kind of being shoehorned into being a palatable version of that for the artistic industries, and I just didn't think that was the trajectory for me. Especially as I was navigating at 15, 16, 17, my blackness, my brownness, and my queerness. So I thought I love history, I do very well at school, and I want to learn more about the world. I think it was very Eurocentric at secondary school and when I was looking at the syllabuses and curriculums of the different universities across the country LSEs was the one that resonated with me because it was international so it was quite an easy decision for me it was just a case of deciding when to go which ultimately came a little bit later I left school at 18 and started acting and then enrolled at uni two years later and I loved it yeah. I hope so.
0: <laughs>
1: I think I did the time to find what worked for me. Uh-huh. So I tried to be like Emma Watson at Brown son's Harry Potter. But like very much like dipped in as best as I could whilst also juggling a career, uh, the start of my career as an actor. So like, mm. that would be auditions, sometimes running to seminars, mm. never being too late. And then, you know, going to lectures or being on Moodle as much as I could. Edithi very graciously granted me an interruption during my second year to go off and do a tour of a uh, big musical across the country for nine months I came back we commenced my second year finished out the semester was doing a show at the globe at the same time as my exams which was wild in hindsight and then the third year I spent half of it on the road playing Roman running Juliet whilst making sure I got all my essays in and my, my lecturers and my teachers were really accommodating and I think because LSE is in this thriving city in the heart of it I mean you can walk five minutes and I'll be at a stage or sort a of theatre that I that, so I think for me that was a huge appeal of going to a London-based university, a very international university, and one that, you know, encouraged and facilitated my passion rather than felt deterred by the
0: fact that I was doing a history degree but very much with the act. So, stop complaining about it's too much, I can't have all the times, uh, all these things. Look at Aaron, what he did, uh, <laughs> right? Studied successfully and did all of these other things at the, at the same I time. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. <laughs> your
1: sleep does suffer. But at the same time, you get to choose your experience at university, right? Mm-hmm. This is your time for independent thought, not just in the classroom, not just in the lecture hall, but in the city that you frequent. So Mm. why you are here, I don't know which country or nation you all are from, but I would encourage you to explore and experience London in all its capacities. Mm. It's arguably the best city in the world, depending on, you know, what you're using it for. But whether it's galleries, exhibitions, go dancing all night, Mm -hmm. talk to your friends, challenge each other, have debates, I think why this history is because it encourages you to have critical thinking it encourages you to question and constantly look at different lens or different perspective and the fact that each country relative has its own version of historical events so yes we can maybe agree on facts and figures and often statistics but whether you're from japan or jamaica or india you're raised with a different education system arguably so then what i loved about this university in particular was I was seeing in seminars sometimes of six, seven people, all from different parts of the world, all talking about our different viewpoints. And so then I'm learning about their experiences and their way they've seen history, their, their lens. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I maybe mean, I'm conditioned to think a side way. Mm-hmm. And that inter- interplay, it doesn't happen necessarily, just always in fashion. As you know, you're members of various different societies, across the campus, so
0: can would just say, do it all now? Yeah, quickly <laughs> explore, have fun? Indeed. Um, so as I mentioned, this is part of um, Black History Month, and um, so I understand you have various projects in various stages of development that celebrate Black characters and Black pro- projects. Um, can, can you tell us a little bit about it?
1: Yes. So I've been a working actor for 13 years, but I would say I've been professional writer probably for about three of those. I've always written, I was writing lyrics when I was seven, and I was eight, nine. I remember trying, to will we garden year seven and I wrote her a lot of that. <laughs> just like, oh, oh, thank, thank you. you. We're not best friends, but um, <laughs> I say all that to say that I started writing, assigned to my writing team about three years ago and kind of hit the ground running with a project heavily inspired by my life as a black, brown person and I've got eight projects on my slate, active projects on my slate. There's a writer, four in the US, four in the UK. And seven of those I would say are black protagonists. And then the other one has a Southeast, South Asian uh, queer leads, set in Manchester, very fun. So I'm half Indian, half Punjabi, of Punjabi. So I'm proud. And my story is always centered around the black-brown experience because I want to write from what I know or the people that I know or my family. And we're often sidelined, I would say, in this country. I mean, in the world, arguably, but the, the content, for lack of a better phrase, because I do not enjoy that word, the, the work that I would watch growing up was
0: often African-American, because we were allowed to be lawyers and doctors and villains and
1: lovers and have a hearts broken on screen, whereas here we were quite, we were the sassy friend or the sexy, ingenue we were coming for a scene. So it's very important for me as a writer and creator to feel like I want to enfranchise not only myself and those around me, but the next generation coming up to be able to see messy, multifaceted, colorful, vibrant characters who
0: are black and brown. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I love theatre and I love opera. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've just seen Rigoletto uh, Saturday in the Mm -hmm. Royal Opera House Beautiful um, venue, yeah. Uh, the last play, what was the last play then? I saw well over the summer, I don't go so much because the weather's so nice, right? Right? Um, so on stage, diversity clearly has improved. When you look at the audience, it's very, very white. Yes, what's going wrong?
1: Oh, good question, Eric. So much, and also so little, in the sense of those in power are doing very little to pioneer outside of the bubble. So, A, theatre is not accessible, even though they pretend to be, and I've been in it for 13 years, so I know the beast. Like you said, on stage diversity has come a long way, but making a lead in a show black doesn't equate to being inclusive, it can often be tokenistic or signposting. I have always been very passionate about all aspects of the industry, whether it's the wigs and hair, makeup team, to stage management, even the lighting, and... Mm, Probably nine or ten times of the shows I work on, it's an all white male creative team, so it starts at the top. And then when you see who runs the show, it's all white producers. So until it shifts and the global majority are given the keys to the kingdom, not much change is going to happen. So that basically is indicative of why the audience is in a certain way because if it's those people in power who are making shows and versions of what they want to see, they're not bothered about exploring how to get audiences in. that don't necessarily represent them or their experience, but it is happening. Like if, if this year I saw for Black Boys, I came back from LA and the first thing I saw was for Black Boys, the Western transfer. And looking around in that audience, we'd be so happy because it was just a seal of melanin and we were having such a good time and, and it was made for us. And it's happening, but too far and too few in between. So I think we need to just make a theatre cheaper or at least do a sliding scale and also go to schools, go to different parts of the country and say, hey, what do you for you? Or what do you want to see? Actually, let's engage in a conversation
0: and dialogue. Yeah, it's really good points. I mean, just on the price, what I have found scandalously is that theatre, uh, the, particularly the Royal Opera, housing mm-hmm. become unbelievably expensive. Right. They now sell tickets like 200 mm-hmm. pounds. The Royal Opera House says tickets £330 yeah. or so. I always try you to... You go to money Barcelona money. for that money. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Uh, actually, you can take a whole week and, uh, think, and I find that's really bad, uh, I have to say. I it's something that, that I've observed over the last two
1: years or so. You get the nail on the head. I think it's something that we're coming out of post-Mannacotto. I don't say the B word anything else. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but Pandemonium, Benini. But because it suffered so exponentially and so severely, mm-hmm. They haven't been bothered, and I say they just doing all inclusive. Just the industry hasn't been concerned with who's watching, they're just concerned in trying to get profit and margins. Yeah. So they're putting in big commercial. I would say also this is in the commercial theatre space, yeah. because actually, if you look at the fringe theatre, it's so progressive, so fun, so exciting, so bold, so yeah. queer. Always has been. Yeah. The big West End venues or the Royal Opera House. Um, I would say the National's also an exception because it does do good accessible tickets. But these space, and the e and also does really good tickets for like under the thirty five Absolutely. But a lot of these spaces are just concerned in bombs on seats. So they'll start cast, they'll put another production of a movie turned into a musical, which we're going to see a lot of next year. So many movies, and they're going to be fun, don't get me wrong. They're going to be escapism, mm. but they're also going to be £120 pounds a ticket. So it's yeah. like,
0: how do we, how is that fun for anyone? Yeah. It's a hard place to be. It is. Um, okay, for the time being, last question for me completely different one, Um, filmmaking. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have the strikes and it's in part about artificial intelligence and what it could do in part Uh, and I actually want to ask you a little bit about artificial intelligence. Um, How do you see what it will do to the whole to the whole industry, for writers in particular, but also for actors, particularly if you're not the star actor, Mm -hmm. right? They now want you to sign these things where they take pictures of you for one day and then they have to write. And they use your face in perpetuity. Forever,
1: it's just ridiculous. I mean, they have been arguably doing that. I think, did anyone see online recently a show on a certain platform that had the front row of the crowd scene were actual people and then the ones behind, right? AI what's basically for lack of a better phrase. So I think for me any new technology if we're willing to learn and grow and listen to what it is and the language it's speaking it can only benefit us. It's the fact that we aren't actually engaging in that dialogue just yet. So I don't know when the smartphone came in I'm sure people were like no but I love my flip phone no I don't want to have my internet accessible. Now we love it because I mean i write my scripts on the go i'll be sat on the train the train is the best time that's when you should do all you're reading and you're writing and use that as bonus time travel time if you're not driving obviously you should be driving safely if you're on a trainer or two listen to music read a book listen to a podcast or sit and just think in your head because it's it's cheat time you're not having to use your body you can stand or be sitting so i would always encourage people to do that i mean you could also just chill which i probably should do more of but i say all that to say that Anything new that comes in, there's going to be some resistance to it. So it's just the fact that certain studios and execs are wanting to manipulate the newness rather than utilize how beneficial it can be. And I'll use an example. So I also songwrite, and I've seen in that space, AI has been really, really exciting and really beneficial. So you can stick your lyrics and your melody into quote unquote AI and be like, okay, I'm writing a song for. Selena Gomez and it will AI her voice and then you can pitch that to her team and they're basically hearing her a version of her singing that already so she's more likely to be like oh yeah I might this because I can hear it in my voice. So there are ways of using anything to your advantage but I think it's just the fact that it's being abused at the detriment of the artist at the moment. So I think we're going to see a change over the next couple of years. In terms of for a writer the WGA came to a great deal with AMPTP. Mm-hmm. Yes, we love the WGA. So for the next four years, at least before the renegations happen, we are protected from, not protected, but at least there is clarity in how AI will or won't be used. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, It's very disruptive in good ways. And exactly, that's a great word. Yeah. Ways, yeah. Okay, I'm opening it up. Who would like to ask a question, say something, feel free. Yes, please. Um so you said you started as an actor and you've only started writing. Yeah. Can, have, can you can you please yeah speak into the mic, say who you are? Yeah. Um, my name is Vivian Shirley. I'm a lawyer at a media entertainment law firm. Um, so yeah, you said you got into writing in the last year, so I'm just wondering how you broke into writing particularly into an American TV show.
1: That's a great question. Uh, anyone who knows me knows I'm very tenacious. I am a Leo. Aries Moon, Cap rising. But the Cap rising is important because it means that we're very hardworking sometimes to our detriment. So in terms of writing, lockdown happened and I'd always written. But I said, like, This is a good time to get my Shakespeare on and write a script. I thought it'd be about three weeks, maybe that was very naive, you nice, I guess. But I wrote a script very quickly and I'd seen on Twitter slash X a production company was doing a call cool out. And I would met with them for like a coffee in twenty nineteen and I was rehearsing on another show and kind of pitched them my project in about a 15 minute window that ended up being a 15 minute window because we just filed. So I sent to them in April 2020 and then it optioned it in May 2020. So there's a bit of weird reverse engineering where I wasn't repped as a writer, I didn't have representation, but I now had an option on an original script. So it was kind of uncharted territory because I, was like, oh, I don't know if I feel protected. What does this look like? So I kind of put feelings out some agents and an agent had seen me in a production of a show a couple of years prior to who cross repped So she read to actors and writers. She was like, leave it with me. Let me have a talk with my team. And they read it and they're like, well, we'll help you informally, just like with the deal and everything. And then over the next few months, I wrote a bit more and kind of would share things with them. And about, I guess, nine months later, they're like, you know what? I'm gonna like I think they liked my energy and my tenacity. I don't know, I can't speak to them, but yeah, they'd be in my team and then they introduced me to a UK. So they are a global agent and they introduced me to an incredible UK agent who is like my second brain. And yeah, they're the ones who put me up for the work on the right side of the pond I guess they could put me up for anywhere, but predominantly my territories are LA and London. Thank you. So I know that's not necessarily the most usual way. A lo- I would say that a lot of my friends who are writers came up through theatre. So they wrote plays, they went to Fringe, or they put on readings and sharings, got commissions at theatres, and then from that, I mean theatre, London the theatre is unrivaled. So people go see it, and they go, we love your writing, can you write on this show, or can you make this into a TV invitation or a film? And that's kind of their way, usually that's kind of a, more, not that yeah. it, more conventional, I guess, in some yeah. ways. Yeah. okay. Yes,
0: please, thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Abigail.
1: I just graduated from LSE, so Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. It's nice to be what back. What did you this
0: study? Is, uh, Public Policy. Mm-hmm. So this is my first time back on campus as alumni. Um, my question is, as a creative,
1: I'm curious how you find the Whole industry from, like, opportunities, saturation, everything from, like, the U.S. side of things and then the U.K. side of things, because moving here from the U.S., I hear so many comparisons between the two, and as someone who is going into the creative space, I'm very curious to
0: hear how you feel about, like, both industries in the U.S. and the U.K.
1: Whereabouts in the U.S. are
0: you from? I'm from Brooklyn, but I grew up in Atlanta.
1: Okay, we love uh, also Leo. Hey, we <laughs> How long um, are you gonna be staying in London for creativity in your business?
0: Yeah, London's home now, I'm
1: working on my business now. Congratulations. Thank you. So I can only really speak from my experience, but I would say in terms of the parallels in reverse, which without not sounding too contradictory, is that being a Brit, a black Brit in LA feels enfranchising. franchising. So I'm curious to know for you as a black person, and I don't know you're a person, it, that might be actually really empowering being American here because you're one of one, you're the number one, you're the only one to quote Miss B. So in a way, leaving into what makes you unique in your set environment then becomes your superpower. Mm-hmm. I feel like I can be my, my best self here, don't get me wrong, but I feel like I come alive creatively in terms of collaboration in the States because there are more black owned businesses, more brown owned businesses, there are entrepreneurs who are willing to connect and collaborate in the UK it's still quite closed door mindset it's still we'll pull the ladder up behind us so if you find someone who's going to ride with you here you can hold on to them because it's just more of a rarity and I don't think the grass is green I just think America's a bigger country and because of its storied history the specific communities have had to make things for themselves rather than rely on the infrastructure that was there not to benefit them, whereas here for some reason our communities, our global majority of communities, are still trying to work within the confines that weren't made for us and don't benefit us. So you see the Easter Rays, the Donald Glovers, the Mindy Kalings, and you see what they've done. And it's also, I mean, to talk about it, but frankly, Donald Glover was a diversity hire for 30 Rock, and I think Mindy Kaling was a diversity hire in the office. So. In a way that's positive discrimination, if you however you want to look at it, they're amazingly talented. They're they're incredible. They are my inspirations. The gag is in the UK, we don't even have that. We don't even have an equivalent. Like we don't have a quote unquote diversity higher thing. I'll go into a, a writers room and be the only black person, the only queer person, often also the only brown person. So then everything has to go through me, and I'm like, but I can only give you what I know. And yes, I have a big tribe. My parents can attest I have way too many friends, but. I shouldn't have to be the voice for all black people, for all brown people, for all queer people. That's not fair to me or to the community. So, until the rooms start to look more like the world that we're living in, in this country, I would say I feel more advantaged in the States. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for your question. And I wish you luck with your business. Can't wait to see it come into fruition for whatever be.
0: Very good. Who would like to go next? Yes, please. Hi, I'm Aditi. Um, I wanted to ask what your experience has been like as a black, brown, queer person, in theatre, but more just in general, in whatever space you may be in.
1: Thanks, Aditi. I'm very lucky because I have a beautiful family, so I feel like I've always been very proud of where I come from. And I've also known, so I haven't had to be only 23 of me. I'm very aware of where I am and who I am. And I think also having a black mother means, I can only speak from my experience, but a lot of my best friends, or several of my best friends are very and they have a black father and a white mother or a black father at different time. Different but I think with me having a black mother, there's just had the tenacity and strength and resilience that she has had to go through in life to not only thrive, but just survive on a base level. So having that role model, I think for me has allowed me to be like, oh, I have to work 10 times harder, but I can get there because she's had four sons, met the love of her life and raised me to be hopefully a kind ambitious person. And I think having that as as an example really means that I haven't necessarily felt um, too sidelined, at least within my community or those around me because I know that's not necessarily everyone's experience, especially when you factor in being queer. I mean, I'm half Jamaican and I understand that's not a contradiction, but the country is not the most welcoming to the queer community to be diplomatic. So I think I came into my queerness, I was very proud of my black and brownness, but I think I'm bisexual, biracial, bicoastal, so all the (laughs) bias. I think in that sense, to answer your question without deviating, because I can digress, I would say I'm constantly caught in the middle. And I played a role, the last role I played on the theatre stage was uh, the role of Mae and Juliet, which is a great musical jukebox, uses the music of Max Martin, who is a hero of mine, I love him. And the role of genderqueer and literally sings, I think the lyric is, feels like I'm caught in the middle. That's when I realize and for me, that kind of encapsulates who I am and how I am. I always am put in the middle. But it's only now that I'm like, oh, that's the strength. That's great. This, for me, is something to celebrate my duality and the fact that I am of both and of kind of all, in a way. So that's something that I love. And I think the more that we just accept who we are, the easier life will become. I know it's not always that simple, but like I said, to bring it full circle, because of my family, I'm like, great,
0: I can do this. But that can also be chosen tribe, you know, especially within the community. Yeah. And have you ever, in the industry, because of who you are, experienced really bad, absolute absolutely behavior and treatment, and and how have you dealt with it? Because I think we can learn something mm-hmm. from, you know, how you have, how you have, well, dealt with being treated in a different way, perhaps in a bad way. Perhaps sometimes openly, sometimes much more <clears> subtle. <throat> mm-hmm.
1: right. I think brain is the, the king of microaggression. So, I started working at 18. I wanted to work from a kid. Well, My mom, mom was like, Achish! and she's right, important. But when I graduated, graduated when I left school, I did five A levels, it was very geeky. Um, I was 17 oldest baby and got signed to an agent and started working. And the industry has changed a lot since 2010 to where we are now. So I would go into auditions and, like, not black enough. And at the time I had relaxed hair and I was still, like, trying to figure out who I was as my black self or my brown self. But also, so what if I had relaxed hair? It was, like, big and awesome. And I was in my model era. I thought I was the one. I really wasn't. But <laughs> I, I tried it all. And I think in the industry, they're allowed to be as specific as they want, especially for screen because it's often higher than what you look like rather than what you're offering so if you're not palatable or at least identifiable to the notion or idea of what they want a black person to be or a black man to be on screen they can be as blunt or at least in 2010 they could be as blunt as possible. so I kind of took it on the chin it was it wasn't great because sometimes I knew I was doing really well but I don't get to, it be down to me and one other guy and we could look more different and then like, you're back backing up. I was like, but I haven't changed the color of my skin since you saw me initially. Um, I think in my queerness, that can be kind of a double-edged sword as well because sometimes the notion of being queer on stage is a version of a person and it's often a caricature of a person. It's sassy, larger than life, biting, cutting. But that's also a testament to the character that's written sometimes as well. And I'm like, I don't always want to be cast and then play kind of that stereotype. That is, you know, archaic in a way. I think I mean that said, there are incredible things I have done that have been queer roles, I love playing queer roles. But I don't want it to just be defined by that. So um yeah, it's but any feedback, think, I'm at this point now where I love myself, this is the worst I love myself, so if someone's like, oh, we don't there, yeah, I'm like, oh, that's you, that's your that's your prerogative. that's your opinion, we're not gonna lie, going to lie, we're going to work together, um, rejection is the best form of rejection. Interesting.
0: Who would like to go next? Yes, please. Two of you. Hi,
1: well. I'm Faith, second-year law student, and just following on from that, I was gonna ask you like, how do you deal with rejection? Um, I'm currently like in application season, applying for training contracts. Yes.
0: That's hard, but yeah, as a someone in the theatre space or even like more generally, how do you deal with rejection or setbacks? Like, how do you come back from
1: that? Oh, I I personally deal with it by <laughs> dancing out, seeing a challenge <laughs> It happens so much. I can't stress enough. I think, I think, because of the way that society perpetuates acting and actors, and we celebrate the 0.1%. Most of my tribe are, are not working, and then when they work, it might be on set for two weeks, or it might be a three-month run of a show, but then they're not working again. And yes, work begets work, but it's for a very few margin, and that's shifted substantially since the global lockdown because people who are maybe saying no to a certain tier of jobs and suddenly scrambling for money so that you have these big players in the industry taking roles from the next tier underneath, if that makes sense. So it's been an interesting climate, I would say, and, I, and sometimes I'll get three no's in a day and then I'll get through to later rounds and then I'll be like nope, nope, nope. And all I can say is um, eat good food, <laughs> <laughs> see your friends, go on walks, Understand that you can only do what's in your power, so it's amazing that you put yourself out there and you're gonna apply, apply for things that you wanna do as well, because this is your life. So, and you've worked really hard, you're at arguably the best university in the country, so we already know that you are capable of doing all those roles and doing all those jobs. Mm-hmm. It's just now how the jigsaw pieces are gonna align, or how the chess pieces are gonna move. And also, you're interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you, so when you do get all these routes, as I'm sure you will, be like, do I want to be working in this, in this vibe? Oh, they excite me. This is a good conversation. I feel comfortable being myself in all aspects of who I am. And I think we don't ask ourselves that enough. That's something I've started to do in the past maybe four or five years when I'm in the audition. Sometimes I'm pouring out my heart, singing a song, and having to cry and jumping through all these hoops of what they want. And I'm like, but do I even like your energy on the panels so or these <laughs> men stiff, they're all looking. Uh, Do I want to be working with you for five weeks, pouring out my heart, and then working eight times a week in front of 1,500 people, singing, belting, taking over my life? Um, I think I'm good. So sometimes, you know, trust your guys, I would say. Mm -hmm. But
0: it's not nice ever being rejected. But But keep persevering. Yes. It's totally normal to get rejections. You'd be surprised how... Some of the most successful people in this world, some of the most successful entrepreneurs, they had so many rejections and so many people said no to their idea or no to this before they break through. You know, it's yeah, just exactly. it's just a normal part of. of and life. you're not defined.
1: I mean, I'm going to butcher the phrase, but you're not defined by how many times you hit or down. You're defined by how you get back up. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'm like, oh my gosh, I look back at my, myself in the past and. Like, oh,
0: I really got through that, Absolutely. you know, so, yeah, you got this. Okay. Yep. So. <clears> thank <throat> you. Hi, i Danielle, we met before. Um, my question was, obviously you were speaking about being autopilot, which I found really funny, but <laughs> I wanted to ask if you ever feel like there's pressure on you, or if you place pressure on yourself to adequately represent, I guess, every part of you, and if you know doing like finally like I guess almost difficult to give each part of your identity enough attention.
1: Mm, great question. Something I'm always navigating. I'm one of four brothers and I think we all determine and define our identities in very different ways. My the oldest brother is uh, a director in LA, I you, a Hollywood director in LA, is an incredible, massive inspiration. And Although he's a black brown man in LA, he probably actually lives the experience of a black man because we all know when you're in America, the black experience is very different. So, whereas I feel like the notion of being mixed race in the UK for some reason is just a very different thing in and of itself because there seems to be loads of. Look at our sports people or our big celebrities, whether it's Leona Lewis or. olympic athletes like we I guess we understand the notion of biracial quite well in the UK so I do feel like that in and of itself is an identity that I can feel comfortable in but then you add into the fact that I'm not half black half white half black half Indian and they're two communities that have very fictitious relationships just in and of themselves because of the empire mostly I'm sure but um yeah thank you for that but uh I It's something that's always ever fluctuating, it's a really good question. Um, Yeah, it's always a cardboard. like I'll be in conversations, I'll even be in spaces with colleagues and then we'll get talking and then I'll say something and they're like, oh, what? And I'm like, yeah, i am having a job with that. Oh, but you don't, oh, okay, but do your lips? are, and I'm like, oh, (laughs) gosh. So it's something that I'm constantly having to navigate and then educate, I guess, as well, and then factor in as well, like you said, um, I love all people, so it, depending on my environment or circumstance sometimes i feel like i'm like this butterfly social butterfly that has to kind of change to accommodate those around me um i don't know it's, yeah great question and it probably didn't answer really, very well but thank you Who would like to go
0: next yes please Hi, I'm Charlotte. I'm not a student. I went to school with Aaron. Um, I just wondered how you found it now that you're a writer, and you're writing in collaboration with so many people. How has the creative process changed from you writing all these scripts by yourself?
1: Ooh, thank you for your question. Also, one of my inspirations in the audience, an incredible writer and journalist. I love being a part of a team. I think that's why I love theatre. And I think so it back to LSE, I would come alive in the seminars, and the class discussions, and the debates because that's how you learn and grow and evolve. So yes, it's great when I'm in my solitary moment and working on a script or developing an idea and typing away ferociously on my laptop. Which my only skill set at LSE that worked to my advantage was I touched type. So i will be sat in a lecture just listening and typing. I think Anthony Best, I remember his lectures were really good. And I would type everything word for word and my friends next to me would be like, Can you send me the after? I'm like <laughs> I guess. But uh, uh, <laughs> that was a good thing or bad thing. But I love being part of the team and I love that it's the interplay, it's the dialogue, it's the ideas get better when you're adding, constantly adding and people challenging, questioning and it's just you figure out communities so I came up in the Zoom era of writers rooms so they were international rooms so I was working with people who were in Toronto and I was in LA at the time we had Toronto Paris we had outside of Toronto we had Manchester all in the same room and everyone's it's all coalescing The energies are coalescing the conversations were, were amazing so I think I do love the fact that I can then go away and kind of collect my thoughts and figure out what I want to implement and don't implement but it's nice to be able to dip in and out that I think it's something that we should be doing in more spaces and more businesses. And especially in the artistic world, I think theater would really benefit from having a similar kind of collective space to play and create, especially when they're working on like, new plays and new musicals. they have like a writer's room equivalent. I think we would see work increase tenfold, because it's not just in one brain, or like one book writer and one lyricist and would be like maybe 10 people. Like
0: our next. One of the things I have observed more recently um, is a lot of plays with just one actor, mm-hmm. or maybe two. Mm-hmm. Um, what explains that? Yeah. Well, for me, I think it's two problems. So, firstly,
1: as humans, I think we really like to see the intimacy and the vulnerability of someone sharing their heart and soul on stage. And it helps when that person is very propulsive and engaging, like a Jodie Comer. Yeah. On the flip side, if I'm putting on my now show running producerial hat, it's cheap or cheaper. Mm-hmm. You have one cast member, you see, yes, you have all the tech and crew. Often if it's the one person show, the set is probably going to be quite minimal, probably black box, quite pared down, quite... Uh, avant-garde if everything ends up being avant-garde then nothing is avant-garde but anyway I think it's partly that as well so in this post world we're living in where we're navigating rebuilding the industry respectively it's a lower risk to yes you're paying a, week, a heavier weekly wage a higher weekly wage for that start but you're not having 20 30 class members to mm. navigate negotiating. Hey. Hey. So, I think on that end, it's but then, yeah, it's also really exposing, like I said, and vulnerable and kind of beautiful. And then you're getting that up close personal when we were deprived so long of that interaction and that mm. in person connection. You're getting to see some of your favorite TV stars mm. go through on stage for 90 minutes. Mm. What do you think? Do you like watching it? Um,
0: Does someone do pull their heart out, one person, yeah. So, um in the beginning, I thought I wouldn't like it at all, because I do like, you know, that interaction of multiple <laughs> actors. But, of course, I have seen, you know, don't ask me now for the names, because I have a terrible memory. I have a terrible memory, but I have seen multiple performances with either one, only one actor or, or two, and they were amazing. I guess it depends. Mm-hmm. But I've always worried about, well, what about... <laughs> because, I, you know, as an as an academic, I always worry, that's partly why I asked you about artificial intelligence, I, I always worry about uh, people broadly, you know, employment opportunities yes. and so on, so you know, I did actually think, is that cost-saving, is that, is that, cost saving? Is that Absolutely. cost-cutting? Um, Absolutely. Of course, you know, often the one actor is then quite famous, so I guess they need to pay a lot to that mm-hmm. uh, person. But yeah, you are absolutely right. You know, you don't have to employ thirty people mm-hmm. for twelve weeks or so. Mm-hmm. I guess you save a lot of uh, money on that. But sometimes, sometimes it's also star-led in the sense of
1: it will be an actor or a creative who's like, I want this challenge. Mm-hmm. I want to lean in and see what yeah. it would
0: look like to 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 go through yeah. that process. So mm-hmm. I mean, the the last last that I saw Eddie Izzard. Oh in, wow! Um, in um, that's right. No, 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 no. no, the other one. Um, right think, no, it's actually a Dickens story. Um, David Copperfield. Oh, oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, I think, and he was amazing. They yeah. yeah. were amazing. I mean, they were just amazing. I also saw them multiple times That's in the comedy. Very, very short time. Unbelievable.
1: Who's seen a one person show recently? Show of hands? Yeah, what did
0: you see? Judy
1: Coleman. Oh, Judy yeah, yeah, Coleman. Yeah. yeah? Was it good?
0: Yeah, but, um, because she, like, she's got it, do you know what I mean? So, she got it, she yeah. got it. <laughs>
1: no question about it. She made killing... Oh, actually, they were both amazing,
0: but... but they were quite expensive, those tickets, no? She got the Live in the cinema. Ah, oh, okay. Cheap, actually. Okay. How about you? I got a free ticket because I'm going to sure. go. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. I don't know how much they. I think they they got the cheaper ones who were up at the top. Mm-hmm. So I think it would have been like twenty five thirty. Nice. It's uh, who yeah. you know. Okay. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Who would like to go next? Yes, please. Wait for the microphone. Hi, Aaron. So one of the key pieces of feedback from our alumni community is that they want to continue to learn after they leave Hampton Street. As an LSE
1: alum, what are you most excited to be currently learning? or to learn next? Oh, what am I most excited to be currently learning? Okay, I'm currently learning Portuguese. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. Brazilian Portuguese. Fala português. Fala <For the> Portuguese, I'm a poquitosi. Poquitosi. I don't know how to learn Spanish, but I need to learn it. I mean, I need to learn it. So I feel like for me, I used to be, a, I love languages. I actually, fun fact, it's not a fun fact, but I applied to go to do Spanish at uni. So that was what I kind of, I wanted to basically go to Harvard or, or Yale, or I looked at the fees. I was like, okay, I can't just that. I can't afford that. <laughs> So I spoke to my school and they were like, well, you got like the highest UMS in Spanish. So why don't you do that? I was like, okay, that's good advice, I guess. And then applied to do Spanish. I was like, no, I love history, so I actually didn't go and I started acting, and really did the whole Ucas thing for history, and that's how I got into that. But I love languages. My mum was a French teacher, so I grew up kind of just enjoying the Romance languages, and so I'm just trying to complete them like Pokemon cards. <laughs> uh, so it'll be Portuguese, and then I'll finish with Italian. But so that's what I'm really excited to be currently learning. I'm also in my bag. I'm reading again. I, I haven't read in a while, and when I read, I love it. So I'm reading Benedict Everista at the moment and just enjoying immersing myself in, in the pages. Yeah. But I do, funnily enough, think about going back to school. Not yet. Not yet. But, and I think it would probably be stateside because, you know, we're going to sell all the scripts and then have the money to be able to pay for those crazy feats. But I just enjoy. Being on campus, mm-hmm. yeah, and challenging my brain in that capacity. And I like kind of the formal side of education. Maybe that's controversial to say, I don't know, but it's great you have YouTube University these days and TikTok College, but um, yeah, I like to be a person. So it must have been hard the past few years, everything being online, and mm-hmm. I respect everyone's perseverance and tenacity.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, well, certainly during the pandemic, mm-hmm. you tried to keep as much in person as possible, it was actually the government that shut us down ah, that f- kept open a lot more because it's just not fair on the street. I respect that. They want to be in person. But they, they would like to go, who would like to go next? Yes, please. Um, hi, I'm Christina. I'm a second year undergrad. I'm doing philosophy and economics. Um,
1: I just wondered if you could go into a bit more detail about the start of your creative journey, like how you got an agent, especially because uh, you just mentioned you didn't have any formal acting training, and if you had any practical advice for people who want to break into the creative industries, starting from, like I guess, the very bottom. Yes. Your voice is very soothing, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I So this was, I'm sure my age, but back then... The industry was very different. It wasn't social media oriented. So, like, people would put out open calls and castings on mandy.com or even on Twitter. And I was,
0: as long as I got my homework
1: done, I'm like, yeah, you can go. So, I would go to audition at the Lyric Hammersmith for X, Y, and Z. But so I think I was 16 when a show called Spring Awakening was coming to London. So, I auditioned for that and got to the finals, maybe like, I don't know, four or five rounds. And I remember being sat at the Lyric Hammersmith in like the foyer, and they were calling us in one by one, very X style. And I was the only black person in the finals. And I'm like, I've got this in the bag. They're gonna be surely. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't get it. And they gave me feedback that said I was too skinny, or pretty much that. I did not have an agent, so this was just the cast thinking emailing the director. I remember being sick form in my um, what do you call it? What's it called, Charlotte? Uh, sick form area, I guess. Uh, Common room, room. Com-room, thank you, 6-1 room. And I got the email on, like, I think it was my iPhone 3G. And I was like, oh, i <laughs> see you for the casting. It's not going your way, you're, you're too skinny for the role. And they, I was like, wait, what? And I was skinny, skinny but they just had decided at the last minute to put me up for a completely different role. Otto, I don't know if anyone knows the show, but he's like a gorgeous, thick person. So I remember kind of being gagged and goods but thinking, oh, they didn't give it even when there was one. Damn, but I say I say it all came back around, so I think one of the casting associates put in a good word there agency agency like, you should keep tabs mm-hmm. on this one. So I didn't, I, I'm sure my parents were happy, but I did get spree because that meant I had to finish my A levels, <laughs> all five A levels, and got my five A's, proudly saying. This was before they had A star, otherwise, I'm sure I would try to get that. But, um, <laughs> and then I left and he'd reached out via Spotlight, there's this thing called Spotlight which back then you needed to have like three professional credits so I'd done a few voice recordings for like the tweenies and Buses and kid shows that counted towards that as when I was like 10, 11, 12 and basically was able to go on spotlight and they were able to email me through that casting service or I guess platform and then I met with a couple of other agents just to kind of get a layer of the land and they thought I had the right one and they sent me on some auditions and I think I put like my second audition and yeah took work from on that. so I'm aware like it wasn't necessarily nowadays you could probably make a reel or a tiktok and go viral and people are like oh my god you're so funny you should be in comedy and then i'm not saying it's easier but it's just a bit more accessible but then we're also sort of oversaturated. so it's like how do you cut through how do you get heard above all that noise so i wouldn't i wouldn't say it's easy way, anyway, should perform form. i wouldn't say that i just would say it's easier to make something mm-hmm. it's harder to cut through um advice i give to i mentor kids in the brit and i always tell them just to to make the stuff they want to see whether that's making a song or making a funny reel or story or whatever it is or writing a short um, and not being afraid to fail spectacularly yeah. which maybe isn't great advice but
0: yeah mm-hmm. uh, can I mean, give you a question mm-hmm. who would like to go next yes. Um, so I'm Zara. I work at LSE, So as a as a student, because um, I've only been a, I've been in Ellysee too so I don't know like what's going on. But um yeah, as a student, were you were you like, did you have creative opportunities? Were there things that you got involved with, like kind of to nurture the acting whilst you were there?
1: Yes, actually. So I was a bit apprehensive at first because I was working throughout my whole university. So I was like, oh I don't want to dive into a society and then not be able to commit because I feel like that would be rubbish for everyone involved. Well, I did join the ACS and I think in second year, I think it was I like joined the Drama Society and started doing shows. So when I wasn't working, I kind of actively in second year was like, I'm not gonna work as much.
0: What, what did you not do when you were <laughs> studying? So you were studying, working, and doing all of that as well? Uh, when yeah. do you sleep? <laughs> That's a question. Um,
1: I don't know, you have energy when you're young, right? I <laughs> don't
0: <Manly. laughs> I don't know.
1: I think also, I, not to discredit, because we love history, but you just don't have as many content outlets. So as long as I was doing the reading, I would uh, read quickly, I guess, I don't know. But I, yeah, drama. And I would say improv. I did improv, which was really fun, because I'd never done that before. And that really got me, not that I was in a shell, but it got me to play in a new way, yes, and constantly lean in. Um, in, in, no regrets, obviously, but in another life where I wasn't doing my Emma Watson, I would have probably invited myself in more societies. Mm-hmm. I remember that a affair that you go through, like, freshers or whatever, and you're like, there were so many, and I was like, put my name down for everything. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> then it's my schedule. I was like, I've got an audition, then I've got a commercial class, and then I've got this, I've got to do my reading. Yeah, that's not going to happen, but hey, it's good to be ambitious.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe. time for one last question. Yes, please. Hi, I'm Abby. I'm a society's coordinator at the Students' Union. <laughs> um, I wondered, in terms of your writing, where do you tend to draw your inspiration
1: from? I know you mentioned train journeys are a really great time for that kind of thing. Um, do you find that it mostly comes to you in those sort of spontaneous moments, or do you have to get in the zone to, to
0: create your? Mm.
1: Well, London is like the best source of inspiration just because there's such a gorgeous array of people. But I will sometimes have my headphones on and not playing anything. And you'll be surprised at what people will say when they think you're not listening. So that's good for just like dialogue and cadence and rhythm to bring authenticity to the page when you're constructing a scene. But I don't know if it's because I was raised on loads of films and music, and that was very much kind of nurtured in in the household. But I don't struggle with inspiration. Sometimes I struggle to just stay on dilute because I'm like constantly wanting to work so that in and of itself is another kind of maybe opposite problem to have but also I love like hotel lobbies because we're getting people in transit people coming through so I like go and have a humble tea and sit and watch and listen or I, I, I used to go out quite a lot um, <laughs> <so> <laughs> I used to go dancing and exploring and you just meet people that way too I think we It's great, technology is amazing, love it, love social media when you use it right, but sometimes we're so caught up in communicating and messaging on our phone, we're not looking around us, and that's the one thing I tell myself even, like, I'm in my bag with duolingo right now, so I'm duolingoing on the go, but (laughs) then I'm like, wait, stop, put it down, look around, enjoy, especially, we just see it come out summer, but it's nearly the festive season, and that's such such a nice time to be in the city, so... Mm. I would just say look up and around a lot more and then just watch how people behave, Was so interesting. Mm. So, and music, I just do a lot of classical music. So I never listen to music with lyrics when I'm writing because it distracts me. So I will listen to film scores or film soundtracks and that helps to untap for some reason as a frequency. But yeah, I don't know, hopefully mm. that answers it. What do you feel inspiration from or draw inspiration
0: from? That's um, something I, I really like yeah. Transport places, you know, like train stations, airports, that kind of thing, where people are arriving and departing. Mm-hmm. Quite cool. Always um, get really deep, in my feelings yeah. at an airport, arrivals and departures. Mm-hmm. that feeling. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, love that. And also, sometimes if you, if anyone ever has writer's block, and that could be your dissertation, that could be a short film, or anything, stimulate another sense without me sounding too, whatever. But I mean, like eat. Spicy food or go dancing and like listen to music. Do something so that seems so far removed because it will like unlock, you know, another sense that then feels satiated and suddenly you're like, Oh, my brain is now freed up rather than just sitting and staring at your laptop and being like, Why is this reading just looking like Bush? I would say get out and explore. Or and and it doesn't mean you need to even leave your house. You can cook in your kitchen and stick on your noise cancelling headphones, but yeah. Be curious. That's the one thing I really, mm. really learned at Edison as well, is mm. be curious to learn, to grow, to be challenged, to be wrong. I'm wrong all the time. Mm. Um, and I'm willing to be wrong. That's why I say fail spectacularly, is because by failing, you learn how to succeed. So, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. I don't think curious to kill the cat. It couldn't be a better ending for a conversation than that. And thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Uh, Well, thank you for, I mean, you are just a testament for how wonderful our students are and the great things they they go to later on. And then come back and be in conversation with us and and with our FAB students. I said in the the green room before, many things have changed on the campus. It's much better now. Um, (laughs) But one thing that is a constant is our FAB students you have always been amazing you are amazing and you're is really amazing thank you so much Ellen. thank you very so much. thank you for listening you can subscribe to the LSE events podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next we hope you join us at another LSE event soon